0: Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Centering, where we talk all the things related to Asian American Christian life and to living out Asian American Christian faith. This season centers on the theme of biblical scholarship and the church, and I'm really excited to talk about this because often there's a perceived disconnect between the work of the of biblical scholars and the practical needs of pastors and ministry and people trying to live out their faith on the ground. So as your host, I've gathered together a diverse group of cutting-edge Asian American biblical scholars to ask them how their work is shaped by and geared toward the church. How does their research and expertise reach us and impact our understanding of God and the interpretation of the Bible? Uh, So to help us delve into these questions, I've invited Dr. Lisa Cleeth. But first, let me tell you a little bit about her. Lisa Cleeth is assistant professor of Old Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. Prior to coming to PTS, she served on the faculty at Portland Seminary at George Fox University in Oregon. Lisa researches topics on the intersection of ancient Near Eastern studies and critical theory. She works on ideas about textual authority in the ancient world that helps us explore the origins of the idea of the Bible, and also the role of whiteness in North American biblical studies, and to encourage the conscientious usage of the Bible today. Uh, She's published work that offers a post-colonial framing of Jewish identity in a Persian Egyptian colony, uh, where she reflects on her own hybrid mixed-race identity. She's written on the power of narrative to promote resilience in response to trauma by relating it to Ezra Nehemiah and to indigenous American community experiences. So Lisa recently co-edited a volume of the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel series, um, focusing on new approaches to monumentality in the ancient Near East, which I hope we can talk more about. Also, an article that she's working on that I think our listeners may be particularly excited about is called Psalm 106, Blessed Living as a Mixed-Race Descendant. So Lisa, welcome. It's great to see you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeanette. I'm really glad to be here.
0: So this is uh, just a kind of a quotidian question about what it's like to transition from Portland, living in the Portland area of Oregon, to living on the East Coast in Princeton, New Jersey. Like. How has that transition been for you? It's been pretty recent.
1: Yeah, it's been two months now about. um, And you know what it's like out here. It is quite different from the West Coast. I'm definitely a West Coast person too. Like I'm from California and then I was in Portland for five years. So um, there's a lot of different cultural things that are kind of small. Like I've lived in Germany before, so it's not as big of a shift as to moving to Germany. Right. Um, But it's, I don't know, it's small things, the formality of the way people dress, different kind of assumptions about... Small cultural things, but it's going well, I think. And you need a coat, like a real coat. It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. It's still fall. It's like people keep saying this word peak, peak fall time where the leaves are changing and it's really beautiful
0: right now. So yeah. it's still a little warm. So winter's yeah. coming. Yeah. I remember like the winter coats you buy here. They just don't seem to be this in the West Coast. I'm speaking. They don't seem to be the same as the kind you buy on the East Coast. They're just fake poofy and uh, no Gore-Tex action needed until you move. Yeah. where there's real snow. So yeah. I always tell my
1: family in California they have to appreciate how good they have it.
0: We really do. I mean, seasons are important, but good weather all year round—I'm not complaining. Well, I'm glad that it's that you're acclimating to your new digs over there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on lately? Is there a, a text or a topic that's been um, exciting you or keeping you up at night?
1: Yeah, right now I'm teaching a class on social justice and the Bible that I've been developing over the last couple of years, Um, and it's a class that really ignites a lot of my passions and unites them. And it's a class where we really focus on decolonizing readings of the Bible. So it kind of integrates a lot of considering history of the United States and how we've constructed race and other kinds of hierarchies in the U.S. and how that's been brought into interpreting the Bible and how the Bible has also been used to reinforce some of those divisions, right?
0: Yeah. Um, so
1: one of the things I do in that class is I look at biblical terms for words related to justice, um, so I thought I'd bring up maybe a passage that has one of these words um, I can read it for us. it's from Isaiah 458 um, Isaiah 458 says shower O heavens from above and let the skies rain down righteousness let the earth open that salvation may spring up and let it cause righteousness to sprout up also I the Lord have created it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this has the word righteousness a couple times, which I think is a really confusing word in a lot of English usage. Um, it's a word that is tzedakah in Hebrew, um, and it's a word that's often used paired with other words for justice, um, and I think what we get from Isaiah 45.8 is that um, righteousness has to do with wholeness, wellness, healing, in the whole of creation um, sourced from God, right? So I think righteousness a lot of times in Christian context gets taken as Um, living an upright way, like being in right standing kind of morally um, before Mm -hmm. God and in one's practices. Um, But in this text, it really looks like it's about the idea of wholeness in all of creation, and it's related to salvation, actually, and again, salvation is related to justice because of this, um, and wholeness, so I just love the holistic sense that we get here for what God is, like, promising, and this is a part of Isaiah that has to do with comfort in exile, Mm -hmm. so it's really this promise that God is going to bring wholeness to the whole world, and when we hear that word, righteousness, both in Old and New Testaments, I think we actually should think of this idea through all of creation, and not just of internal kind of moral ideas.
0: Yeah, that's really illuminating. And it helps us to think you know, that justice and issues of social justice are not modern ideas. They're weaved into the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, as you've helped us see. Um, how are your students, how, did, how are they taking to this class and to your approach to teaching texts like this? I'm, I'm assuming well. <laughs>
1: I well, yeah, we'll see how they go for the rest of the term. But um, when we were talking about concepts like this idea of relationship to creation, like we're we're dealing a lot with like who is the social and social justice? Who are we connected mm. to? And that part of what I think we get from the Bible is who we're connected to is all of creation, actually, not just other people. Um, And so as part of studying this, we went to the farm that Princeton has, you probably know, we have a farminary, it's called, Um, and just kind of took this idea of connection to creation by walking through and seeing like the goats and the chickens they have there and the mushrooms that are growing under the trees and all the flowers and herbs and food that's being cultivated there. And we had a really interesting conversation, I think, generative about how we're connected to all of this and thinking through how we narrate human relationship to the rest of creation.
0: That's relate. It makes me think of a recent uh, lecture by Musa Dube that she gave at the missiology lecture. She's talking about the mission of God and mm-hmm. connecting the mission of God to the, uh, to the, to creation mm-hmm. and how sometimes we, with this, there's this disconnect when we take concepts like righteousness void of the context of the Bible from which they come. Absolutely, And there's such an earthiness to the type of righteousness that the, the Psalm, Isaiah is talking about and what you're talking about here. So yeah. yeah. Farminary, can you tell us a little about that?
1: Yeah, they're developing a new program. Actually, I'm not here to like promote it or anything, but I think it's a really exciting idea. The idea of connecting eco-theology to actual practice. Like we're going to develop programs where people are living on the farm and Interacting with the earth in this very particular way through cultivation and care um, while reflecting on theology. And I I think there's a real huge emphasis, which I try to also bring up in my social justice class, on um, one's daily life and rhythms and activities being a locus of justice and wholeness.
0: I'd love to hear about how you discerned or decided you want to become a biblical scholar. What was your journey like? Were there pivotal moments or people in your life that helped you realize this is what you wanted to pursue? Were you young when it happened? Were you after college? Like when, when, when was this for you? Um, It's kind of been a long journey. It's taken a while
1: for me to arrive at both the confidence and clarity that this is what I wanted to do with life. Um, My undergrad, I did a double major in French and Bible theology at Wheaton College, And I loved the Bible classes I had there, but I had absolutely no notion that that could be a vocation for me. Um, But I just took the classes because I liked it. And I really liked biblical studies and theology as well as language, which is why I studied French. Um, And after undergrad, I kind of floated around, had no idea really what to do, but I just felt like I wasn't done learning. So at that point, I enrolled at Fuller in an M.A.T. program, um, which is where I discovered Hebrew and really got encouraged by folks like John Goldengay, who was there at the time, um, that I could maybe pursue doctoral studies. And I really needed people to speak to me and give me that confidence because I was kind of slow and coming to like really believe that, you know, um, so that was a really powerful thing there. Um, also at Fuller, I had some Hebrew classes with an adjunct, Roger Nam, who is now at Candler School of Theology. And whom I interviewed. Wonderful. So he's just been a wonderful mentor to me, starting from this class I had with him at Fuller. And he was like, yeah, you can do this. Um, he's continued to be an encourage- encouragement to me. But um, because of him, I applied to UCLA for my PhD. Um, and I discovered there that I could bring bring together my study for language and culture and ancient history with study of the Bible and help all of this to actually make sense of um, the family that I come from and the background that I come from. It wasn't really a conscious thing that doing this work was something that was that personal, Um, but I was raised in an evangelical context where the authority of the Bible is so significant, right? Um, It's woven through everything. So ultimately, actually, I've been kind of working towards using the tools of biblical studies and the tools of studying the ancient Near East to kind of understand where I come from actually. So it's been a very personal journey.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that, how the study of the ancient Near East and languages and tools of biblical studies helped you become more embracing or conscientized to your identity?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of things. For one, I think um, studying the ancient Near East is kind of like traveling. Like when you encounter a different culture you highlight what your own identity is like. Like these days, if I travel and I never feel so American as when I'm located in a different culture and I realize, oh, these things I take for granted in my daily life actually are a very particular culture. Um, So to me, traveling to the ancient Near East through study is a way of highlighting how the way I've always learned about the Bible in my American Protestant context actually is very American and Protestant and even evangelical. um, And there's a contrast there. So even on the topic of biblical authority, when we look at the way texts function in the ancient world, um, there's a lot of different assumptions around what it means to write something down and for that thing to have authority in a community um, to the way we talk about that kind of authority, actually in a lot of church contexts. So I think that difference has been generative for me.
0: Yeah. You know, you speak and read many languages. You seem like they're gifted in your languages. You, you studied French, you lived in Germany, you know, ancient and modern Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, <laughs> Greek, I could go on. And so sometimes I think uh, people may not understand how that, that language study can enhance and, and really open up your interpretation of scripture. And in, in, in doing so, your service to the church. So would you like help us track that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and that? part of studying those languages is bringing the ancient world to life. So understanding like the cultures and the peoples that produced the stuff that we have in the Bible and transmitted it. Um, but it's also a way of looking for meaning within the Old Testament itself, since that's my my specialty, just looking for like, what are the history of words in there? And how do sentences come together to construct meaning? So it can even have kind of that micro level of analysis as well. Um, so both big picture, and then like looking at meaning in the text.
0: So a student might be like, okay, I, I'm barely hanging on to Hebrew, I'm barely able to, to grasp Hebrew, and I'm Trying to fit in Greek in my, if you're a seminarian listening in. And then why Euritic? Why Syriac? Why Ethiopic? Like, what's the point?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, A lot of these things, um, we don't always have a lot of information about ancient stuff. So like there's a small handful of just Hebrew inscriptions in ancient Palestine. And so that's the same language that we have the Old Testament in. Um, But there's other languages that are related and from the region that help us to understand Hebrew better actually. And they also have similar literature to what we have in the Bible. So like in Ugaritic, we have a lot of poetry that's very similar to the Psalms. um, And it helps us to illuminate Um, what the Psalms are doing as like a genre how they might have operated socially Um, and to me studying the ancient Near East helps to illuminate things in the Bible that are really enigmatic and weird like Mm. the weird stuff in the Old Testament and New Testament where we go through and we're like I don't know what that means you know why is this here why is this a part of God's word how are we to even understand it and what tools do we have so part of the tools we have are in study of the ancient
0: Near East there are en- en- enigmatic and weird things in the Bible, yes. <laughs> I love the weird things, actually. It's my favorite stuff. <laughs> but also, I think it reminds us that the, 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 the Bible is set in a very diverse context itself. It's not just like a monolingual, like one language, one culture. There, it's set with, among many diverse languages and cultures. And, and, and I think when we remember that there are different religions Different types of material culture, you know, that 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 really brings alive the context of the texts that we're studying and the people that we're studying,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the humanness
1: of it, like the humanity, the business, right? People's words, people's traditions, communities formulating who they are, their identity through active engagement with their narratives and their poetry and song. So yes. we can connect to it because it is human, like we are, right? Right.
0: Um, You know, for just students who are struggling with their study of ancient Hebrew or, or Koine Greek, biblical Hebrew or Koine Greek, what's like one pep talk or affirmation you can give them? Or even wondering whether they should invest because it may not be required or necessary.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one value of that investment is appreciating that the Bible, um, when we read it in English or other modern languages, is a translation, Um, and just appreciating the work that goes into it, even if you yourself don't become an expert in the language that you're studying, you can understand um, that a huge investment has come into creating, say, the NRSV when you're reading it, and understanding that in that process of translation, um, some things have changed and altered, because translation. translation can never be exactly literal. And I think you understand that when you're studying the ancient languages, even if you don't arrive at an expert level. Um, but another maybe pep talk thing I could say is find your superpower in the language. So I've had students who maybe studying grammar is really hard for them, but they're really good at reading aloud or they, they have really good handwriting. Um, so kind of try different modalities while you're studying. A lot of times we can emphasize just reading the words on the page and translating them because that is kind of the ultimate goal of studying biblical languages. But there are languages that were alive at some point that were spoken and part of communities. So that Means that people were writing them on a daily basis if they were scribes or learned how to write or they were speaking them, right? So um, try s- using all those modalities, speaking, reading, writing, and see what your superpower is and use that as encouragement because we all need some encouragement in doing these really hard things. You
0: super- find your superpower. I love that. I'm going to have to find mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lisa, I want to talk about how you became more conscious and aware of what it meant to be, what it means to be Asian American and how your mixed race identity um, has impacted the way you interpret the Bible or teach the Bible uh, or see yourself as a biblical scholar.
1: Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot in the last few years, especially since my training doesn't like directly speak to that. Like I did a degree in Near Eastern languages and cultures, and I've realized in recent years that what I was being taught there was a European and Western way of approaching the ancient world and the biblical text. Um, I would call it a white way of approaching the text. And even the methods methods that I was trained in um, operate operate within that sphere. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about um, my own identity in order to kind of parse apart what is white about the methods that I was trained in. Um, And dealing with my own identity has been complicated because I've always, as someone who is mixed, um, had a a kind of imposter syndrome when it comes to thinking about my Asian American identity. Um, Since my father is Scandinavian American, my mom is Chinese American. um, And both sides of the family actually have been in the US about five generations. Um, So in a sense, we're very American, right? Um, And I often will get questions like, how Chinese are you? As if that's something like quantifiable, right? Mm Um, so the kind of questions that I get from different directions make it kind of challenging for me to articulate this. Um, so one of the tools I've actually found within academics to help me think about my own identity is um, critical race theory. Um, so like when you're introducing me, you're talking about how I, I have this background of studying the ancient Near East and the Bible, um, but I also try to bring that together with critical theory. And that actually has been a very personally useful thing to me. So in studying that, um, I, in part, have looked at the history of the U.S. to see how race has been constructed and kind of try to understand where where I fall within that. Um, And that's been useful to me in understanding that the category of Asian American has always been heterogeneous and Mm -hmm. diverse, right? And for me, that kind of makes space for me to be within that. Um, And the other thing that I've learned from American history is this idea of blood quantum, um, Mm -hmm. which legally was applied to Native American communities. And this is where we get the idea that you can quantify how much of a race a person has. So like I grew up up saying I was 50% Chinese American and 50% Scandinavian American. And I've really kind of moved away from that um, because I realized that that kind of way of articulating amounts of race um, has been something that's been at the service of the U.S. government in trying to actually lessen the amount of non-white folks here.
0: Yeah, Lisa, you're really hitting on an important theme that Asian American identity is not a monolith. It's not homogeneous. It's really heterogeneous. And, um, and I think that's that idea of like, how Chinese are you? How Asian American are you? And that there's, there's this, sometimes that, and you're, you're linking that to this quantum problem as if you can quantify and pure and keep it pure, so to speak, if there is such a thing and yep. who does that serve. Right. And, and also how racialization works, regardless of whether one can prove or whether, you know, one feels how Chinese, you know, more Chinese than others, there's still a racialized experience living in the States. That is not something one can always, it doesn't, you don't choose that. You don't get to necessarily define how you encounter other people and how they perceive and encounter you as well. In light of your family background and some of the and the work you're doing, you talked about um, critical race theory as being really personal to you, and I understand that as well. But I think sometimes people think that it's very abstract, Hmm. and so to think of it as personal, to think of it as kind of an excess, not only just a a lens through which you can understand um, and analyze text, but also like an existentially important perspective and lens and mm-hmm. understanding, like, can you flush that out for us a little bit? Yeah,
1: I mean, a question, they, I it's helped me to make more sense of my experiences in the world, right? Um, so like intersectionality is a concept mm-hmm. that, Of course, Kimberly Crenshaw like created coined this term um, from a legal perspective, but this is something that's become a part of the larger framework of critical race theory, and it helps me to explain a lot of the experiences that I have as a woman and as an Asian American walking around. Um, so, for example, I often get treated diminu- diminutively um, as if I'm lesser, have less power, I'm smaller. I get treated as if I kind of take up space in the world, both literally and figuratively in a different way from other folks. And so I can understand that by saying, oh, I understand actually that there have been hierarchies of power established in the United States that are created in order to give me less power, actually, and the way that's enforced is through the social treatment that folks, execute on a daily basis, and we all kind of internalize those ways that we are treated and those messages that we receive. Um, So intersectionality has helped me to think about, wow, those things are coming together in the larger picture of the United States and the hierarchies here. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, very much so. Hey, I'm Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center, I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support Centering, please visit fuller.edu slash giveaac. Again, that link is filler.edu slash give Thank you for listening.
0: If you don't mind, let's go back to like the kid Lisa, right? Like as a kid, you said you grew up in Germany. In oh, no,
1: I, I grew up in California. I grew up in, in
0: California, but I had some time in Germany. Um, Yeah, as an adult, I had a as an adult. Okay. But living in California, which is pretty diverse. Did you find it a struggle to be Scandinavian and Chinese? Was that something that you were aware of? Was it something that was celebrated at home, emphasized or kind of not talked about? Yeah, I did find it celebrated at home and it was something that I was always proud of. And I
1: remember going to like my school library to try to check out books about Scandinavia and about China to try to understand, like, what is my connection to these places? I don't know that those books exactly explained it to me, but I just remember like wanting to understand Um, and the places I'm from in California, I was born in Monterey Park, um, uh-huh. so it's lay in this like very Asian American center. At least at the time um, that I was born, it already- a pretty
0: high Chinese population, probably at that time.
1: Yeah, not when my mother was growing up there actually, but by the time I was born it was. Um, But when I was five, my family moved to San Luis Obispo, which is one of the whitest towns in California actually. So I would have this interesting experience of going to visit my Chinese American grandparents in Monterey Park and then going home to San Luis Obispo where when I got picked up after ballet class, everybody knew who my mother was that was picking me up because she was the only Asian person there and I was the only Asian person in the class. Um, So in some ways, living in that small town kind of highlighted my difference from others, but I also didn't understand how I fit in when I went to visit Monterey Park. So that's definitely a part of that liminality of being in between. And that's part of the reason that I describe myself as mixed Asian American. And um, I will sometimes describe myself as Asian American, but that idea of being mixed kind of speaks to the even kind of confusion that I would feel sometimes, um, or the sense that like, I don't fully fit um, in either world.
0: Yeah. And I think I uh, want to highlight this because I think for some of our listeners, I, when we, th- we talk about Asian American identity, sometimes they're... Folks that get feel left out of that large term. It's not meant to be exclusive, but inclusive. You know, and so I, I, I want to. I feel. I hope that our listeners do feel seen, um, especially if they identify also as mixed Asian American, um, because there, there might be a lot of discomfort or ambiguity just around. Am I allowed? Am I legitimately allowed to be at this table? As if who gets who gets to gatekeep that question, and yet. I just want to name and acknowledge that that can be an area of conflict and difficulty when trying to participate and engage in Asian American conversations. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. And I think I've been on
1: a path towards, I would say, decolonizing my identity and my racial identity by saying I'm not going to have external folks police what my identity exactly. is. Yeah. Since yeah. that has served the purposes of white supremacy really, it served to maintain power in the hands of select folk, right? Um, And so within the Asian American community, um, I would want to decolonize that as well and not be exclusive for the purpose of giving power to somebody else.
0: (laughs) Yes, well said, well put. I know you're a brilliant scholar and nerdy by nature perhaps, (laughs) but what do you do to stay passionate and creative in your work? Like, what do you do for fun? What do you do to decompress? It's a good question.
1: So many things. Um, I think of it as like cross-pollination, like Hmm. the the times when I am taking the best breaks from my work, my scholarly work, is when I get the best ideas, actually, or when things like marinate and connect. Um, Because I think the work that we do is very creative, actually, and we need space and time for things to process. Um, So I really like to be active. Um, One of the things that I really love right now is circus arts. So I train um, a variety of circus arts, and I've, I've always loved movement. I was a dancer when I was a kid, um, since I mentioned ballet, Um, and I just like to move. um, And I think being in my body has been really important throughout my scholarly career. Like when I was writing my dissertation, I started rock climbing because I couldn't think about my dissertation while I was doing that. I'm hanging from my hands, I'm facing fear and I can't think about other stuff. Um, So movement for me is important. And also just like engagement with the arts, going to museums, um, even listening to podcasts, just across a lot of different kind of sensory experiences. I find that I get inspiration for my work and also breaks from my work. It's not like I'm always thinking about how those things affect my work, but they do have a nice side effect of
0: that. Yeah, I think I like. I think I need to find a a hobby that helps. That's so hard that I can't think about my work. That might be a good idea. So my life depends on me just focusing on that one thing. Um, Rock climbing. I don't know about that, but
1: (laughs) you can find your own version.
0: (laughs) It worked for me. No, but I was impressed by your aerial silks. Like that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I really, I really love it. It's super fun. It's a really creative community. So I'm still looking to New Jersey, actually, but I'm going to hope to find
0: something. I, there's got to be something around there. It's got to be. <laughs> there's definitely. You talked about this when you're you're talking about the superpowers of what your study of Hebrew, our study of Hebrew or Greek um, for students who are doing that. But can you give advice to people who are just wanting to delve into deeper study of scripture? What are some ways in which you do this or you encourage your students to do this for for the every person, everyday everyday life for any part any person.
1: Yeah, I have kind of like more conceptual things that I could maybe make kind of practical. Um, one of the things is I think important to read really broadly across the biblical canon. Um, So like a lot of folks do things where they like read through the whole Bible in a year, that kind of stuff. Um, But I think what's hard about that is we don't have a framework for connecting the really diverse pieces of the text. Um, So what I would say is when you're doing really broad reading across the Bible, think of it as, um, I don't know, a text that has conversation with itself. Um, And kind of remember that this is a collection of literature that was produced over hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, So if it seems like things aren't exactly in alignment as we go through some of the different things it says, try to just say, this is a conversation, try to bring um, a discourse together between different parts of the Bible, rather than making it say all the same thing throughout, um, but rather think about, okay, there's different historical contexts that came up, up. how can we bring these things into conversation, rather than forcing them to be in a very kind of literal agreement?
0: That's good advice. And I I hope that students and listeners And myself, that we do read larger swaths of the Bible, not just like one book throughout the whole year. I think that there's something to that. I feel like I've been doing that lately, (laughs) actually. But the witness has different voices and different contexts, different questions, different problems and concerns.
1: Yeah. Um, And there's benefits to that. Like as we go through different human experiences, there's a whole variety of literature there that's a resource to us that's expressing different kind of human
0: experiences. Well said. I want to go back, Lisa, to some of the work that you're doing, because I think it's so interesting. Your your recent edited volume is on new approaches to monumentality in the ancient Near East. And for those wanting to know what that means, can you just tell us a little bit?
1: Yeah, um, I think when we hear the word monumentality or monument um, in America today we think of something that's like a large physical object, maybe like a sculpture or something that has words on it that has a really large scale physically, um, and also reflects on an important part of history that is being brought into the current moment right. Um, So in a sense, we're kind of questioning that definition and looking at um, large inscriptions or maybe smaller inscriptions in the ancient world. So the inscriptions are just pieces of writing in the ancient world and looking at how they interact with physical space um, and with community through physical space. So it's another way of asking about what texts and objects can do and how um, their social context is important to understanding that. So that's a and, great no, that's
0: good. No, that's helpful. And your upcoming article on Psalm 106, Blessed Living as a mixed race, as mixed race descendant. Mm -hmm. or as a mixed-race descendant. Can you just give a sneak preview on that?
1: Yeah, it's meant to be more of a practical reading. There is a little scholarly background to analysis of it, but it's a part of a volume that's co-edited by Gail Yee and a couple others. Mm -hmm. And they wanted individual scholars- I interviewed her as well, so- Excellent, perfect. Another connection. (laughs) Yeah, lots of connections. Um, So they wanted us to, as scholars, give a little background for Psalms, but then talk about how we personally interact with that Mm So that's a psalm that we might call a historical psalm that talks about the history of Israel, but in doing so, it's giving voice to repenting for one's ancestors, Mm. which is something that I think is a genre of prayer in the Hebrew Bible that Christian communities often have not interacted with. And this is a part of Jewish practice, actually, as a regular part of liturgy to repent for one's ancestors. Um, But I appreciated that we have, we have a number of Psalms actually in prayers, including in Nehemiah and other books of the Bible, um, that are these kinds of communal repentance, Um, and I like the idea that we're thinking about being connected to our ancestors, and being really honest about things that they have done, not having to say, you know, kind of make them into heroes or perfect figures in the past. And I think the Hebrew Bible is really good at this, right? About talking about ancestors and saying they definitely weren't perfect, (laughs) but we're gonna remember them um, in the complex ways that we have this tradition of. Um, So for me, this idea of engaging with a connection to one's ancestors helps me to think about actually my white ancestry, um, since I know that my Scandinavian ancestors came to the US um, for the Homestead Act of 1862, which is for the intent purpose of settler colonization was to claim Native American lands that were being doled out by the American government. And I'm still trying to figure out how to kind of think about that, but I really want to change the way I narrate that family history. And I hope that I can repent for that in ways that are active. Um, And I'm really thankful that there is like a biblical model for doing that.
0: I think that is kind of sometimes we think when we embrace our identity, we have to positively think of all aspects of it. And that's not what it means to embrace the complexities of our identities Mm -hmm. as Asian Americans, for example, or mixed Mm -hmm. Asian Americans. Like we can be very honest Mm -hmm. and and truth telling about the the glories and the horrors of our past Mm -hmm. and the things in between. And so I'm looking forward to reading this and hopefully many people will be able to access uh, this piece and your work in general. And it's exciting to hear the work you're doing at Princeton Seminary and the classes you're teaching and I'm certain your impact will be long and large there. Lisa, I'm interested in hearing more about how critical theory and uh, your study of critical theory and American history informs or illuminates or connects to your work in an ancient Near Eastern world.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of ways that I can do this. Um, one of them is in in creating case studies between the ancient world and the modern world. So in the same way that in the modern world, we can look at structures of power, ways that colonization, for example, has affected the lives of folks. I can kind of compare that to the way, say, empires function in the ancient world um, and the way they created hierarchies that might be analogous to the hierarchies of race that were created in the United States. So it's kind of one way of connecting to the ancient world that produced the Bible and also looking to the Bible to see what kind of power structures are within it. Um, There isn't a racial structure, but there are different hierarchies between people groups and they're dealing with other kinds of reality that might relate actually to colonization. We have a lot of ideas of empire influencing the literature that's in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament as well. So we can do kind of case studies to compare across time. The other thing that I think is really important to do is looking at the legacy um, in Western biblical studies of the kind of whiteness that I was talking about earlier in the methods and the motivations. Mm. Um, So like early biblical scholars and early biblical archaeologists were really interested in proving the Bible um, and saying that its authority comes from its historicity, from the fact that the things really happened, right? And they have a specific motivation, I think, because they're doing a kind of textual work that can reinforce authoritarianism in readings of the Bible, saying there's one right answer to what the Bible has to say about something. So I'm really interested in kind of piecing apart that history within the field of biblical studies and asking if we can separate out some of the methods we use or adapt some of the methods we use in approaching the ancient world from say nationalistic interests um, or from interests that otherwise centralize power in just one group rather than And providing access to all Mm. the two mainstreams.
0: Mm -hmm. You talked about, you gave like a little bit of a tip for Bible readers about not necessarily taking the Bible literally, but reading across the witness of scripture, like conversation. Mm -hmm. And can you unpack a little bit about the challenge of biblical literalism and the church?
1: Yeah, it's a huge question, but I I basically came from a church community that I would call evangelical that really took the Bible as um, needing to be literal in order to have um, some authority as the word of God. And so I've really been on a path as I study more of where the Bible came from to kind of challenge that idea, since a lot of the passages don't really make sense literally, especially when we compare them to archaeological discoveries, or even in comparison to other biblical texts, right? Maybe they say slightly different things. Um, And I've had to kind of think about this as a different way of thinking about God's word and say, actually, maybe the the locus of authority, the the source of authority doesn't have to be in literal meaning in the text, Mm -hmm. um, but maybe be more so in the life of the text in community. Um, And so that's a huge shift that I've made throughout my career. And so thinking about the text as a conversation, thinks about it as um, coming from the life of communities that produced and transmitted those texts. Um, But we can also find authority in the Bible through the life it has in communities today. Um, It's alive in the churches that we're in, right? Um, And that is a source of finding meaning in the text and um, finding our connection to God in the text and to each other. Um, So I think that shift in what I would call the locus of authority from literal truth to a living and breathing word of God and community um, has been really useful to me in dealing with things that otherwise would have created
0: tension in understanding the biblical texts. Thank you so much for helping us understand that. And I see that connection between your critical theory and your critical analysis and how that applies to us today as readers of this very, very multivalent, nuanced, communally, communally um, situated text uh, mm-hmm. that, we, that we receive, that we engage today. Uh, so that your work on questioning biblical authority, it really does speak to how we understand biblical authority today. And we can't unpack it all today, but I'm just seeing this connection too, between the importance of humanity, the humanness of the people in the text, the readers of the text, and the impact it has in creation, like those kind of things came up a lot in your work as it relates to justice. And so it's just really cool to see these connections um, in, in your work. And I do think it speaks very much, very relevantly to us today. So thank you. I'm glad. Um, are there any closing words or last thoughts you'd like to to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe just
1: a little bit more on that point about ancestral living. To me, that's another way of thinking about that social of social justice. Not only are we connected to like the people that live in the current moment and creation as we encounter it in the current moment, but we're also connected to the people that came before us, the legacies for positive or for negative that they they left. So for me, this helps us to kind of understand moments where people are like, oh, well, I'm not the one that took Native American land or I'm not the one that enslaved mm-hmm. folks, okay? That doesn't mean that we don't have a connection to and any benefits from privileges, from the kind of things that they participate in and were are responsible for. And we still have some responsibility to that. Um, so I think it's a way of reconnecting to times before us and thinking about how we can continue to live um, in active ways to repent through action.
0: Amen. Oh, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Lisa, thank you for your time and for sharing more of your story and also the things you're passionate about and the work that you're doing. Thank you again uh, to all of those who are listening in. I hope that this has been a rich and rewarding 45 minutes of your time. And please tune into the next episode of Centering. Thank you. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.